Illuminati, devil worship. But it had to have been the eggs. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing is as it seems. And everything is connected. I call it the paranoid style. I'm a regular person. Normal American nut job. Hey, sister. Hey, sister. (laughs) I love a conspiracy theory. Tell me what you know about Bohemian Grove. Tell me what you know about MKUltra. Tell me what you know about the paranoid style. Listening to this, you're the NSA. Hey, sister. Hey, sister. Today is the day. The grandpappy of modern conspiracy thought. Sister, tell me what you know about the JFK assassination. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas at 12.30 p.m. Central Time on Friday, November 22, 1963. He was taken to Parkland Hospital for emergency treatment and was pronounced dead 30 minutes after he arrived at 46 years old. Great. So far, you've hit upon all the facts that are almost universally agreed upon. JFK was shot once in the back with a bullet exiting his throat and once in the back of the head. Okay. The shooter was former U.S. Marine, Marxist, and normal American nutjob Lee Harvey Oswald. You're losing me. Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. And we're done. Where are you going? We're still recording. I'm not sure if I can sit here and listen to this claptrap. Claptrap? I thought I raised you better than this. I'm older than you. Allegedly. Okay, well, let's at least take a look at some of the other things we know to be true. (sighs) Allegedly. That's better. John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born May 29, 1917, in Brookline, Massachusetts. He graduated from Harvard in 1940, where he received a Bachelor of Arts in Government, concentrating on international affairs. He served in the Navy from 1941 to 1945 during World War II. He married Jacqueline Bouvier in 1953. He was a member of the Democratic Party, and he represented Massachusetts in the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate before going on to become the 35th President of the United States from January 1961 until his assassination on November 22, 1963, which always amazes me because it was such a short period of time for someone who had such a huge impact on the history of the United States. He wasn't even president for a full term. He was the first Catholic president. He was plagued by numerous illnesses and injuries incurred throughout his life. As a child, he had whooping cough, chicken pox, measles, scarlet fever, colitis, and ear infections. As an adult, he suffered from Addison's disease, hypothyroidism, and severe back problems, which he incurred when injured in World War II. I think it's fair to say as president, Kennedy had a practical rogues gallery of an enemies list. Who baby, now you're talking. Qui bono. Never been a U2 fan. But who benefits the most from a dead President Kennedy? Let's start with Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Unnecessary evil. The vice president from the start was at odds at being the second in command after Kennedy. He had run for the Democratic presidential nomination and obviously lost to the more aspirational pick of JFK, but he was ultimately picked to be JFK's running mate because JFK thought it would help him win the South, where he was not very popular, whereas LBJ was a Texas man with lots of friends in the oil business. 
Friends who were none too happy with the Kennedy presidency as he was getting ready to pass an amendment to close a loophole known as an oil depletion allowance, a loophole that had been allowed to stay open through the efforts of LBJ while he was still Senate Majority Leader. Oil tankers full of cash and an ascent to the presidency all seemed like pretty clear motives. The Kennedys had started to put together plans to get Robert Kennedy, JFK's younger brother and the attorney general, into the White House after JFK. And many in Washington, D.C. kind of already thought about Bobby as being the second in command, not LBJ, the actual vice president, which you know must have pissed LBJ off to no end. We cannot attest to the truth of this statement, but there have been rumors that according to LBJ's mistress, the night before the assassination, she heard him remark, After tomorrow, those goddamn Kennedys will never embarrass me again. Yeehaw! I'm the roughest, toughest, rootinest, shootinest claim jumper that ever jumped a claim. It's like history coming to life. This is fun. Keep going. Who's next on the suspect list? How about the Italian-American mafia? Ah, quattro gatti. Four cats? My Italian is como se dice rosso como un pepperon. <laughs> there have long been rumors that JFK's father, Joe Kennedy, had gotten into bed with the mob to get John elected. Those rumors of Joe's connection to the mafia extend back to Prohibition times when he was supposedly instrumental in keeping the illegal booze flowing. But that partnership, if it had existed, was all but decimated once the Kennedy bros were in charge. The Justice Department under Robert Kennedy's leadership really started to make moves against the mafia. Mafia-related convictions were up almost 300% under the Kennedys. Carlos Marcello, a mobster from Louisiana, definitely had a beef with Robert Kennedy after the attorney general had gotten him deported to Guatemala. Marcello was quoted as saying, A dog will continue to bite if you cut off its tail, whereas if you cut off the dog's head, it would cease to cause trouble. In this scenario, the tail is Attorney General Robert Kennedy, and the head is President John F. Kennedy. Also, pleasant freaking analogy, Carlos. Jeez. A private investigator, Edwin Becker, said that Marcello had clearly stated that he was going to arrange to have President Kennedy killed in some way and that he planned on setting up some nut to take the fall for the job, just like they do in Sicily. Hi, Franny. There was also the rumor that John Kennedy may have been having an affair with a woman named Judith Exner, who also happened to be the girlfriend of Chicago godfather Sam Giancana. Sam Momo Giancana, the man who said that the CIA and the Cosa Nostra were different sides of the same coin. And he should know, since he was at one point recruited by the CIA to assassinate Fidel Castro. That's a good example of someone who had a good reason to kill President Kennedy, Cuban President Fidel Castro. There may have been over 40 attempts to assassinate Castro under the Kennedy administration, and not just by hiring made men. They also attempted poisoned cigars, explosives, exploding cigars, poisoned scuba diving suits, and poisoned ballpoint pens. I think they even contemplated using cats strapped with bombs, but that plan was quickly abandoned. Good luck on that mission. You can't trust a cat. Of course not. All cats are communists. Speaking of communists... 
as we often do. While simultaneously trying to assassinate Fidel Castro, the U.S. was also trying to wreck the Cuban economy. Communists definitely would not have been too pleased with the harsh economic embargo placed on Cuba, first by President Eisenhower, but then made even further restrictive by Kennedy. Good thing Kennedy at least has the anti-Castro Cubans on his side. Well, he might have, except for a little thing called the Bay of Pigs invasion. In 1961, there was a landing operation on the southwest coast of Cuba, whose intention it was to overthrow the Castro government. The invasion was led by Cuban exiles, and it was funded and directed by the U.S. government. Specifically, it had been organized by the CIA. But, At a strategic point of the battle, President Kennedy decided to withhold any further air support. He sort of hung the CIA and the Democratic Revolutionary Front out to dry. I heard JFK referred to as a Cold War liberal, which basically meant that he was coming around to the point of view of needing to meet with the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev, as opposed to the adversarial relationship they had, which reached its zenith with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let me guess, this pissed someone off. It probably pissed off quite a few someones, but in particular, the head of the Federal Bureau of Investigations, J. Edgar Hoover. He was pissed at Kennedy in a number of ways. First, Hoover's main objective was to fight the communists, but the Kennedys were more interested in fighting mob-related crimes. Also, Hoover had a distaste for the Kennedys, especially the president, and the president didn't like Hoover either and had initially wanted to get rid of him. However, since Kennedy couldn't keep it in his pants, he should have talked to LBJ's Taylor. Hoover had loads of blackmail material on the president, which is basically what kept Hoover the head of the FBI for the tenure of JFK's presidency. Well, as long as you don't upset the CIA, those guys are drugged up sociopathic maniacs. Kennedy also upset the CIA. Of course he did. JFK had squarely put the blame for the bungled Bay of Pigs invasion on the CIA and had famously been attributed as saying that he wanted to splinter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it into the winds. Obviously, this splintering never happened, but it did result in the dismissal of then-head of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Surely that is everyone. It's not, and don't call me Shirley. It is often cited that the Federal Reserve may have had a bone to pick with Kennedy after he signed Executive Order 11110. This executive order gave the United States Treasury the authority to issue silver certificates, but my research on this was stymied by sections and amendments and paragraphs and subparagraphs thereof. You couldn't understand it? I could not. So I can neither confirm nor deny what this executive order actually did and who it may have angered. It angered someone. Most likely. Man, was there anyone not interested in killing the president? Jack seemed to have it all. A great job. Mr. Jack, Nikita's on line one and you're giving your moon speech at two at Rice Stadium. Hooray, thank you, Sharon. Beautiful home, a loving family. Hooray, daddy, I love you. And he was very popular with the ladies. Happy birthday, Jackie Poo. He's just got one problem. Er, uh, what's er, uh, going on? Everyone wants to kill Jack. Fidel, comandante, what do you want to do? Vamos a matar a Jack. We are going to kill Jack. The CIA. Director Bronstein here. Enact Order 88. We're going to kill Jack. The Russians. 
Обожмой. We must kill Jack. The lone nut. Lee, where are you going? I was hoping we could watch a movie. Can't, baby. I gotta go kill Jack. The co-worker? Yee-haw! I've reckon I've played second fiddle long enough. I'm fitting to kill Jack. The mob? Chucky typewriter, babyface Bobby, Tommy Thumbs. I need yous to kill Jack. Capiche? Even the movie star. You've stood me up for the last time, Jackie Poo. I'm gonna kill Jack if it's the last thing I do. In order to stop an assassination, Jack's just got one shot, or he'll get three. Kill Jack! Everyone's doing it. Coming soon to theaters near you. All these groups and individuals you've mentioned have good motives to shoot the president or to make sure the president is shot, but there is someone conspicuously absent. Oh, yeah. I think I know where you're going with this. You do? I got this. Someone missing from the suspect list. Hit me. The Majestic 12, the secret organization formed in 1947 to investigate and or recover alien spacecraft, killed Kennedy because he was about to give the Soviets information about the alien presence on Earth. Wow, that was unexpected. No, I I meant Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, right, that guy. I knew I was forgetting something. Lee Harvey Oswald is such an interesting character because he seems to be surrounded by nothing but strange coincidences, weird contradictions, and bizarre behavior. His involvement with the assassination is truly one of the main reasons that the official narrative has never sat well with a lot of people. Young Lee had a very unstable home life. He joined the U.S. Marines and was stationed at Atsugi Naval Air Base, which just happened to be the base from which U-2 aircraft spy planes flew out for secret missions over Russia and China, which means Oswald would have had to have secret clearance as a minimum requirement for being on the base. It is also believed that Atsugi would have been one of the larger CIA staging areas in Asia, While stationed in Japan, Oswald took Russian language lessons. He was not particularly well-liked, mostly due to his pro-Marxist ideals, which he freely shared with his fellow American soldiers. He received a few disciplinary actions, including for an incident in which he shot himself in the elbow while messing around with his own gun. Despite the elbow thing, Oswald was trained and tested in shooting and was given the rating of marksman, but he had previously come close to testing high enough for a sharpshooter rating. After his mother suffered a head injury, Oswald requested a hardship discharge in September 1959, and it was granted unusually fast, which some people point to as being highly suspicious. I think the Marines were just glad to see him go. After leaving the Marines, Oswald went to the Soviet Union, somehow managing to pay for a $1,500 trip despite a bank account that only held $200. Almost immediately upon his arrival, he started telling his KGB guide and the U.S. Embassy of his intention to renounce his American citizenship and he promised to reveal military secrets to the Soviets. It is interesting that in May 1960, when Oswald was in the Soviet Union, a U-2 plane was shot down. I mean, I wouldn't shoot down their plane, but I'm still not a fan. The USSR denied Oswald's citizenship, but after a half-hearted suicide attempt, Oswald was allowed to live and work in the Soviet Union. Oswald spent about two years living and working in the USSR and under constant KGB surveillance. 
Upset that he was just a working stiff and not number one American spy, Oswald packed up his Russian wife and their young daughter, June, and they returned to the United States in early 1962. Oswald did not run into any trouble applying for a new passport for himself or for immigration papers for his wife, and in fact was given about $400 as a repatriation loan. Lee and Marina settled in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and were part of a community of mostly anti-communist Russian exiles. Most notable of these acquaintances was George de Morenschild. De Morenschild came from a rich, noble family of Minsk. <laughs> de Morenschild came from a rich, noble family of Minsk. He was a member of the Dallas Petroleum Club and the World Affairs Council. De Morenschild worked for French intelligence during World War II and maintained close business relations with men fronting for the CIA. He was also a close family friend of the Bouvier family and allegedly was known affectionately as Uncle George by a young Jacqueline Kennedy. He also just happened to be in Guatemala City in 1961 when the Bay of Pigs troops set out for Cuba. On March 12, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald purchased a 6.5 millimeter man liquor Carcano infantry rifle with scope for $21.45. It was purchased under the alias of Alec J. Hadell. Why did Oswald mail order a rifle under a pseudonym if he could have purchased a rifle anywhere in Texas anonymously? I'll do you one better. The postal money order allegedly used to purchase this rifle shows that it was never deposited nor cashed at a bank. There is not a single bank stamp on either side of it. But if this money order was to be included as legitimate evidence in the Warren Commission report, then they would need to verify that Klein's Sporting Goods in Chicago had indeed cashed this money order for the purchase of the rifle. Klein's complied and sent a copy of the deposit slip to the First National Bank of Chicago for the deposit that supposedly included the $21.45 purchase price of the rifle. The deposit slip was dated February 15, 1963, approximately one month before Lee Harvey Oswald even placed his order. Man, that turnaround time is even better than Amazon Prime. Oswald would allegedly use this newly purchased rifle on his first assassination attempt about six months before Kennedy would be killed. His target was U.S. Major General Edwin A. Walker, a staunch anti-communist, an extreme segregationist, and a one-time leader of the American Nazi Party. I mean, if you're gonna try and shoot someone... A few weeks before this assassination attempt, Oswald had been fired from his job, but he had not yet told Marina, and instead used his free days to track Walker's movements. Lee also wrote a manifesto listing all the reasons why he would kill Walker. I like to keep a spreadsheet of all the things I would buy if I won the lottery. I call it my money festo. On April 9th at 8.30 p.m., while General Edwin Walker sat at his desk with his back towards the window, Lee Harvey Oswald fired a single shot through the closed window. The bullet was deflected by the window frame, it grazed the general's hair, and then lodged into the wall. Oswald, probably unaware that his shot was unsuccessful, runs away and buries his rifle by some nearby train tracks, and then goes home. At that time, the Dallas police have no suspects for the attempted murder of Walker, so Oswald unearths his rifle and goes on with life. The weekend after the assassination attempt, DeMore and Schilt and his wife were visiting Lee and Marina. When DeMore and Schilt noticed Oswald's rifle in the corner of a closet, he jokingly asked Lee if he was, quote, the one who took a pot shot at General Walker. Although after the JFK assassination, 
Marina Oswald would retell this story with DeMorne Schultz actually asking, How is it possible, Lee, that you missed? About 10 days after this encounter, Oswald and family returned to New Orleans, the place of Oswald's birth. While in New Orleans, Lee Harvey Oswald tries to start the New Orleans chapter of the Pro-Castro Fair Play for Cuba Committee. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee headquarters was like, hard pass, Mr. Oswald. But Lee starts his own chapter anyway, without their blessing, and he lists the president as A.J. Hedell. Oswald printed out a thousand pro-Castro leaflets and would pass them out on the streets of New Orleans. The address that Oswald had listed on those leaflets for the New Orleans chapter was 544 Camp Street. Now, this just happened to be the same building that housed a CIA-supported anti-Castro group and two rabid anti-communists, private investigator Guy Bannister and David Ferry, an American pilot who famously gave a speech about the Bay of Pigs invasion that was so vitriolic towards JFK that he was asked to leave the podium. After the Kennedy assassination, Ferry admitted to the FBI that he may have used the expression, quote, Kennedy ought to be shot, but Ferry maintains that it was merely a colloquial expression. Ferry also happened to be in the same Civil Air Patrol unit as Oswald in the 50s, although when asked about it, he claimed he did not remember Oswald, despite there being photographs of the two of them together. During his time in New Orleans, Lee Harvey Oswald is a highly visible target. He's photographed handing out his flyers on the street. He's arrested for getting into a scuffle with an anti-Castro Cuban exile named Carlos Bringier. And a few days later, Oswald takes part in a debate with Bringier on a weekly radio program called Latin Listening Post on station WDSU. Those photos taken of Oswald in New Orleans passing out flyers are the pictures that some people claim also show Rafael Cruz, father of Ted Cruz. And by people, I mean the crack investigative team at the National Enquirer, who have brought you such hard-hitting stories as U.S. scientists perform successful monkey head transplants and Barbara Streisand moans, I was happier as a beatnik. It was around this time that the FBI took Oswald off their security watch list. Excellent timing, boys. So if the surveillance of Oswald had continued, what else might they have learned? Well, according to Lee's wife, her husband would spend hours sitting on their porch, practicing scoping, cocking, and then dry firing his rifle. And he began to speak of hijacking a plane to take to Cuba. Okay, so nothing out of the ordinary. Totally normal. Towards the end of September 1963, Oswald sends his family back to Texas to live with Ruth Payne, a friend of Marina's, and the lady that would eventually end up getting Lee his job at the Texas School Book Depository. Instead of heading to Texas to find a job, Lee boards a bus to Mexico City. Or did he? Or did he? For now, let's stick with Mexico City, Lee. While in Mexico City, it has been stated that Lee Harvey Oswald visited the Cuban embassy requesting a transit visa to visit Cuba on his way to the Soviet Union. Prior to his alleged visit to Mexico, Lee Harvey Oswald applied for a passport to travel throughout Europe and the USSR sometime between October and December of 1963. That passport application was approved, which means Lee Harvey Oswald could have gotten into the USSR totally legally, and going through Cuba was unnecessary. On Friday, September 27th, Oswald places a call to the consulate regarding routine information like hours of operation. Yeah, hi. Um, what time are you open, please? I'd like to defect. 
Oswald comes into the Cuban embassy later that same morning, but is advised that he will need a passport photo for his application. Oswald leaves and returns a couple of hours later with the appropriate pictures. Oswald is assisted at the Cuban consulate by a Mexican national named Sylvia Duran. Duran tells Oswald that if he is a communist, as he has already proudly informed her he is, then he should have had the American Communist Party prepare his paperwork, as they have a deal with the Cuban Communist Party for a more hassle-free paperwork experience and fast-tracked visas. So he's definitely taking the path of most resistance. It's common sense that you would start locally to figure out how to do this before taking a bus through Mexico. But on the other hand, common sense doesn't really seem like Lee Harvey's jam. Duran advises Oswald that he would need to obtain a Russian visa before receiving a Cuban visa. Oswald leaves and walks to the Soviet consulate where he's told that his visa paperwork would take four to five months to process. At this point, Oswald does what anyone that has spent time in the DMV would do. He loses his shit and needs to be escorted off the premises. When are you allowed to return to the DMV again, sister? 2024. Anyway, Oswald returns to the Cuban consulate after consulate closing time. The guard on duty calls Duran and tells her that someone is at the gate asking about a visa. Duran asks the guard to escort the individual to her office. Oswald tells Duran that he acquired a Russian visa, but refuses to produce it when asked. I don't like the picture on my passport either, LHO. Duran, obviously in a bid to win Consulate Employee of the Year, offers to call the Soviet consulate herself, and she is told that Oswald was at the consulate earlier in the day, acting like a maniac, and had to be thrown out into the street. When Duran relays this message to Oswald, he once again becomes super agitated, yelling about how he can't wait since his Mexican visa expires in three days. Another consul from a neighboring office comes to check on Duran, and he gets into a yelling match with Oswald. Oswald is asked to leave and did not return to the embassy again. Sylvia Duran gave a description of the Lee Harvey Oswald that she dealt with that day. She said he was approximately 5 feet 6 inches tall, weighing about 125 pounds, with sparse blonde hair. Okay, a little thin blonde wisp of a man. That doesn't sound like Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald was a probably about 5'9 with dark hair. Now call me crazy. Crazy. But when you have an obvious weirdo showing up at your job after hours, yelling in your office, and he has to be escorted out of the building, I feel like I would remember what that guy looked like. Sylvia Duran's description of the Lee Harvey Oswald that she dealt with that day would later be cut from the Warren Commission report in the section that included her written testimony. Over 880 pages, and that's where they decided to make some editorial cuts? It should shock you not at all to learn that the consulates of communist countries were heavily surveyed by the CIA, including tapped phone lines and pulse cameras pointed at these embassies. Yes, consider me not shocked. But would it shock you to learn that the CIA could not provide a single picture or tape of Oswald? Not anymore. The CIA claimed that cameras were broken or turned off when Oswald visited, and that the tapes of his calls were routinely destroyed after transcription. At one point, there was a photograph released of the man they believed identified himself as Lee Oswald at the consulate, but it is definitely not a picture of the man that would eventually be arrested for killing Kennedy. The CIA would later say that this photo was misidentified as the real Oswald. Basically, there's no incontrovertible proof that Oswald was even in Mexico City or that he was the one going full Karen in the Cuban and Soviet embassies. That's correct. However, there were some eyewitnesses back in Texas at this same time that do claim to have seen Lee Harvey Oswald. 
There were some reports that Lee had been seen test driving cars in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, although he didn't drive. Let's get back to the events of November 22nd, 1963. Yes, let's hear about all the things that had to go perfectly right or perfectly wrong to result in the assassination of the president. President Kennedy was not very popular in Dallas. During the 1960 election, he carried Texas, but just barely. And Texas at the time was considered a blue state, so he should have carried it easily, especially with a Texas man supporting him on the ballot. There was a newspaper that was particularly critical of JFK called the Dallas Morning News. About two or three days before the assassination, that newspaper ran a detailed map of the parade route. Another thing that was unusual was that Jackie did not usually accompany her husband on trips like this. JFK insisted that the bubble top of his car not be on the car during the parade route. This bubble top, contrary to popular belief, was not bulletproof, but it may have made a difference had it been on the vehicle that day. It could have slowed down or changed the trajectory of a bullet, or the shooter may have just changed their mind. It had been raining all morning in Dallas, which almost would have necessitated the top of that vehicle be on, but just as Kennedy's plane touched down in Dallas, the weather cleared up. Secret Service agents normally would have been posted along the running boards of the car, but again at JFK's insistence that the crowd's view of him not be blocked, the idea was scrapped. So yet another layer of security that was stripped away. JFK felt that it was imperative that he seem accessible to the people of Texas. He's the president. I'm a regular person. The president and Jackie Kennedy sat in the back of the lead vehicle. Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife Nellie were in the front of them in foldable, removable jump seats. And then there was a Secret Service agent driving and another agent in the front passenger seat. Behind the president's car was a presidential follow-up vehicle, which held nothing but Secret Service agents. And then there was the vice presidential car with Lyndon B. Johnson, his wife Lady Bird, and Texas Senator Ralph Yarborough. The motorcade started at Love Field, and it was to end at Trademark with planned speeches at both ends. The route was just about 10 miles and they were allotted about 45 minutes to make the full drive. Along the way, the motorcade was stopped at least a couple of times, once so President Kennedy could speak to a group of young kids and once so he could speak with the superfluidity of nuns. Such a nice Catholic boy. The CIA should have Manchurian candidated a nun. Impossible. God's already got that on lockdown. Picture it. The presidential motorcade enters Dealey Plaza from Main Street. It turns onto Houston Street, and Governor Connolly's wife turns around in her seat and says, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. As they turn onto Elm Street, the first shot rings out. And now it's time for a fun fact with Amanda, because the only thing I love more than conspiracies is horror films. Wes Craven has said that he named his 1984 hit A Nightmare on Elm Street because of the effect the JFK assassination had on him as a young man. He said that moment was when the innocent world ended for him. One, two, Oswald's coming for you. Back to the scene unfolding. The first shot misses the car entirely. It ricochets off the sidewalk and a fragment of cement flies up and hits a man, James Tague, in the cheek. No one really reacted as if this gunshot happened, although in the Zapruder film, you can kind of see Governor Connolly start to look around to his right. Seconds later, the second shot hits JFK in the upper back to the right of his spine. It exits his throat, enters Connolly's back, exits Connolly's chest, strikes Connolly's wrists, and finally lodges into Connolly's thigh. 
This is the magic bullet because of the route it appears to have taken. And finally, a third shot hits the right rear side of JFK's head, exploding skull, blood, and brains onto Jackie. Jackie starts crawling on the back of the car to grab a piece of her husband's skull, and Secret Service pushes her back into the car right before it sped away at 80 miles per hour towards Parkland Hospital. Let's talk about some of the weirder-seeming physical reactions that JFK exhibits after being shot, because a lot of times these are the things that make it harder for people to believe the standard narrative of events. The first thing to remember is, as you mentioned before, JFK had back problems almost his entire adult life. Because of this, he usually wore a back brace. That back brace kept the president upright in his seat after he had been shot, which is why you don't see much slumping forward as you might expect from someone just shot in the back. Second, when the bullet enters his back and exits his throat, you see this reaction of hands shooting up to his neck. This is a phenomenon known as Thornburn's position, and it is a common neurological response to spinal injury. JFK was most likely instantly paralyzed by this shot. And finally, the thing that is so often pointed to as being proof that the bullet that killed Kennedy couldn't have come from behind him is this back into the left motion he makes after the impact of the final fatal bullet. The force of the third shot entering Kennedy's head forced it forward slightly, but then the force of the bullet exiting JFK's head now forces the head back and to the left, which makes it seem like the bullet would be coming from the right, which is the same direction as the grassy knoll. When the president's car arrives at Parkland Hospital at approximately 12.38 p.m., technically JFK was still alive. He had a slight heartbeat, although no blood pressure. A tracheotomy was performed as well as CPR. Although it was clear that the president's condition was too severe and there was never any hope of saving his life, at 1 p.m. Central Time, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy was pronounced dead. As for the Secret Service, as soon as they offloaded the president at Parkland Hospital, they immediately put the top onto the car and began to wash it with soap and water, destroying potentially mass amounts of evidence. They say this was to discourage any gruesome exploitative pictures from being leaked by the press. But let's get back to Dealey Plaza for a moment, because I want to talk about the array of interesting people in attendance that day. Dealey Plaza tears! Roll call! Umbrella Man! Umbrella Man appears in the Zapruder film and several other photographs of that day. It was thought by some researchers that Umbrella Man, who had been raising an umbrella above his head as the president's car passed in front of him, was either signaling the shooters or possibly that the umbrella could have been used to fire a paralyzing agent, making the president a sitting duck for the assassination. Or it could have been like, go JFK! Well, after an appeal by the United States Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978, a man named Louis Stephen Witt came forward and claimed to be the Umbrella Man. He says that he brought the umbrella to heckle Kennedy. The umbrella was a symbol of British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, who many felt appeased Adolf Hitler and the Nazis prior to World War II, and Joseph Kennedy was a strong supporter of Chamberlain. That's a coded heckle there. I bet not many or any people got it. It's a deep cut for sure. Next up, Badge Man. Badge Man was the name given to an unknown figure standing behind a stockage fence on the grassy knoll. 
He was given this name due to the reputed appearance of a shiny object on his chest like a badge. Photographs taken by Mary Moorman allegedly show a man with his face obscured by a muzzle flash. One witness, Gordon Arnold, was on the grassy knoll that day, and he claims he felt a bullet whiz by his head going towards the Kennedy motorcade from the fence. And when he looked up, he saw an officer carrying a rifle, shaking and crying behind the fence. After the shooting, Dallas police officer Joe M. Smith encountered a suspicious man in the lot behind the picket fence. Smith told the Warren Commission that when he drew his pistol and approached the man, the man showed Smith that he was a Secret Service agent. However, there were no Secret Service on the grounds that day. The only Secret Service agents in duty were surrounding the motorcade. Moving on to Babushka Lady, an unknown woman wearing a headscarf and holding a camera and filming even while other witnesses took cover. This woman has never been identified and that footage has never been seen at least not by members of the public. Finally, we have the three tramps seen in a series of photographs. These three men were being escorted by Dallas Police Department, but were quietly released without charge or record. There have been several theories about the identities of these men, from CIA agents to Frank Sturgis or E. Howard Hunt, two of Nixon's plumbers, aka Watergate burglars, or possibly Charles Harrelson, an American hitman who killed a federal judge and who also happens to be the father of America's sweet. Sweetheart, Woody Harrelson. So President Kennedy's body was removed from the Parkland Hospital and taken to Air Force One. Less than two hours after JFK's assassination, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as president on Air Force One. And he made the recently widowed Jackie stand next to him in her still blood and brain covered pink suit. Governor Connolly's wife had asked Jackie if she wanted help cleaning up or something else to wear for the swearing in. And Jackie said, No, I want them to see what these bastards did to Jack. Immediately after being sworn in, LBJ can be seen smiling and winking at Texas Congressman Albert Thomas. At the time that JFK was shot, assassination of a president was not a federal crime. It was a homicide, which would have fallen under the jurisdiction of the Dallas Police Department, which means the autopsy should have been performed by the Dallas coroner. However, Lyndon B. Johnson insisted that the body be taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital, even though they had never done an autopsy before. Another thing that made the autopsy in Bethesda unusual, it was reported that there were no less than 30 people inside the examination room during the autopsy, senior officials, FBI, and Secret Service agents. Apparently, they were also under a lot of pressure from Robert and Jackie Kennedy to get the autopsy done as soon as possible. An autopsy that may have usually taken three days to complete was done in three hours. Because of this time crunch or their inexperience, and or possibly because of other factors, (coughs) CIA... Many of the usual procedures were neglected. They did not confer with Parkland Hospital doctors. They did not examine Kennedy's clothes. They did not track the bullet path through Kennedy's back or even examine all of the internal organs. And as a matter of fact, Dr. James Humes burned his draft autopsy notes and report in the privacy of his own home and then rewrote the final report from memory without any access to photographs or x-rays. And there were some glaring differences between what was initially reported at Parkland Hospital and the final autopsy report by Bethesda doctors. Parkland doctors thought that the neck wound was an entrance wound, which would indicate a shot from the front. They also thought that the right rear of the president's skull had been blown out. These differences are what lead some to believe that President Kennedy's body was secretly altered to reverse the bullet trajectories. 
And to add fuel to that fire, it is interesting to note that there were several witnesses that attested to the fact that when the president's body left Dallas, it was wrapped in a cloth and placed in a large bronze casket. But when the body was brought into Bethesda, it was in a body bag inside a gray casket. So perhaps the doctors in Bethesda were not dishonest about their findings, but rather they were deceived. Although it could just as easily be a matter of the findings being so different due to the trauma of what they were experiencing. They had talked to one of the Parkland doctors and they asked him, did you try to remove the back brace or did you turn him over to examine his back? And the doctor had basically said, we didn't have the heart. And as for that magic bullet, yes, at first the FBI theorized that each of the three shots corresponded to three wounds. One bullet caused President Kennedy's non-fatal back wound, one bullet caused all of Governor Connolly's non-fatal wounds, and the third and final bullet caused JFK's fatal head wound. But this didn't take into account the wound on Kennedy's neck. So the Warren Commission modified this explanation by saying that the back wound and the throat wound had been caused by the same bullet. Although, according to several credible witnesses, such as doctors at Parkland Hospital, the back wound was about five to six inches below the neckline, which means that the bullet would have had to have been traveling upward to exit through the throat. When the story about the wounded bystander James Tague was made public, the Warren Commission again had to pivot to account for this additional wound caused by only three shots. And so, the single bullet theory was born. One bullet caused Tague's injury, one bullet was the fatal headshot that killed Kennedy, and one bullet had to do all the heavy lifting by traveling into Kennedy's back, out his throat, and then doing its own parade route through Connolly. Detractors of this single bullet theory rechristened it the magic bullet theory. Let's check back in with our patsy, I mean our shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald. The night before the assassination, Lee spent time with his family at Ruth Payne's house. He was also there to pick up his rifle, which he had been storing in Ruth's garage. The next morning, Lee Harvey Oswald left about $200 in cash and his wedding ring on Marina's dresser table. He packed up his rifle and four bullets, all the ammunition he had for the rifle, and he headed out for work at the Texas School Book Depository. Kennedy's motorcade was set to go by the book depository exactly at around lunchtime, which means Oswald was by himself up on the sixth floor. The president's motorcade turns onto Houston Street and finally comes into view in front of Oswald's sniper's nest, but Oswald waits until the president has turned onto Elm Street. A more conspiracy-minded person might take this moment to ask why Lee Harvey Oswald did not take the shot when the motorcade was on Houston Street, directly in front of the book depository. But it may be as simple as Oswald having enough military training to know that if he had taken the decidedly easier shot, he would have given up his location immediately and would have had no time to try and escape. So the president turns onto Elm Street and begins to move away from the book depository. Oswald slips his scoped rifle out of the sixth floor window and takes that first shot, which of course misses. But in mere seconds, Oswald ejects the spent shell, reloads his next bullet, and cocks the weapon back into a ready position. The same motion he has been practicing for months while on his porch in New Orleans. Oswald takes his next shot, which hits JFK in the back. And then finally, the third shot rings out, striking JFK in the head. From the first shot to the last, only 5.6 seconds passed. Lee Harvey Oswald now hides his rifle behind some boxes and leaves behind three spent shell casings. He leaves the sixth floor via the stairs, but stops at the second floor lunchroom to buy a Coca-Cola for himself. According to witnesses, he was eerily calm. 
At the same time, a police officer had come into the book depository and asked the manager to take him around and confirm that everyone inside the building actually worked there, which the manager did, including when they got to Oswald. Now it's starting to dawn on Oswald that maybe he better get out of there. So he leaves the second floor, heads to the lobby, and makes his way towards the front door of the book depository. Now out on the streets, Oswald seems completely confused about what to do. First, he walks about seven blocks away from the book depository, but when he sees a bus coming, he gets on. The bus turns out to be a terrible idea because, for one, his former landlady is on it and she clocks him right away. And two, it was heading back towards the Texas School Book Depository. Oswald gets off the bus and hails a taxi going towards his boarding house. Once there, he grabs a jacket, his revolver, and bullets for the revolver. And while all this is happening, a Dallas deputy sheriff is on the sixth floor of the book depository. He finds the spent shells and eventually the gun. He requests that the manager do another roll call of all the workers that should be at work that day. And of course, the only person missing is Lee Harvey Oswald. This is now the person that they are looking for. So Oswald has left the boarding house and is just wandering around the streets. Police officer J.D. Tippett happens to see Lee, and based on the description that has come from the school book depository, he decides he better question this individual. Tippett is talking to Lee for just a few moments when suddenly Lee pulls out his revolver and shoots Tippett in the chest three times. Then, for good measure, he puts one last bullet into the head of the prone officer. Oswald dumps his empty shells next to the body of Officer Tippett, and at least one witness to this crime heard Oswald say, poor dumb cop. Witnesses to the killing of Officer Tippett start chasing Oswald down. Oswald runs away while reloading his weapon. He shakes the group of people following him and is now walking down West Jefferson Street. Every time a police patrol car passes him on the street, he either ducks into a doorway or immediately starts window shopping. This suspicious behavior attracts the attention of Johnny Brewer, the owner of a shoe store. When Oswald walks away, Brewer follows him down the block and watches as Oswald sneaks past a distracted theater employee into the Texas theater and into a showing of the film War is Hell. Brewer approaches the theater staff and tells them a man just snuck in without paying, he was acting very suspicious, and they should call the police, which they do. Minutes later, the officers enter the Texas theater. Brewer identifies Oswald and the officers rush him. Oswald yells, this is it, punches one officer while going for the gun of another officer. Oswald is hit in the face with the butt of an officer's shotgun, resulting in that black eye you see in all the photos of Oswald after the arrest. Oswald is finally subdued and dragged out of the theater while he's screaming, don't hit me anymore. Lee Harvey Oswald is interrogated for hours between his arrest on Friday and his eventual death on Sunday. (gasps) Spoilers! Now, if you want to hear how a conspiracy theory is born, let me hit you with this stunning turn of events. I'm ready. Not even a single second of this interrogation was recorded or even transcribed by anyone in the Dallas Police Department. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. American Public. It's a conspiracy theory. All the information that we do have available to us is strictly from the recollection of the officers involved in the various interrogations. And the only reason we have any sort of record of this moment in history is because the Dallas police decided to march Lee Harvey Oswald out in front of a gaggle of reporters. And as they're leading him away through this absolute crush of people is when you get that very famous Lee Harvey Oswald line. I'm just a 
that's the one. But luckily, Lee Harvey Oswald stood trial and was able to answer all of the lingering questions about how and why he did what he did. Wait a minute. Oh, no, that's right. Enter Jacob Sparky Rubenstein, a.k.a. Jack Ruby, owner of a Dallas nightclub called The Carousel. Ruby is a man with a hair-trigger temper known to strip off his clothes for no reason and he gets irrationally angry and violent for seemingly small transgressions. He is also a cop hanger-on, spending a lot of time at police stations. There have long been theories that Jack Ruby worked with the mafia back in his hometown of Chicago, but there's never been any proof. Since he was a fixture in the Dallas nightclub scene, he probably had some on-and-off dealings with the mob at times. I think the best evidence that Ruby was definitely not part of the mob is that he had a reputation for not being able to keep anything secret. He was known to speak with cops so much that for a while, the FBI considered using Ruby as a criminal informant, although even they wisely decided against it, because the man could not be trusted. But, of course, since this is JFK, there are some strange coincidences surrounding Ruby and his involvement with the events surrounding the assassination. Ruby had a lot of ties to Cuba, He visited Cuba on several occasions because he had an illegal operation to sell surplus army jeeps to Cuba. But there are some people that believe this may have been a cover for gun running. Actually, of all the characters in this story, to me, Jack Ruby does seem like the one person who's exactly what he seems. He came from a family with a history of mental illness. He was violent and unpredictable. He had stakes in several Dallas nightclubs, which all went under eventually, and a string of various failed business ideas, which led to a mental breakdown a few years after he moved to Dallas. He was practically always in debt. At the time of the assassination, he was on a German diet pill called Preludin, an amphetamine, which in Ruby's own words, they help me with my diet, but they aggravate me. Most telling of this mental state at the time was his strong reaction to President Kennedy's assassination. He even told his sister that he was more upset at Kennedy's death than when their own parents died. Ruby was already a regular fixture around various Dallas newsrooms and police stations, so it wasn't that unusual that he became such a consistent presence after Oswald's arrest even walking around with a camera like he was just another reporter. Jack Ruby seems like the one puzzle piece that actually fits. We're about to see this horrible synchronicity at work again when it comes to the killing of Lee Harvey Oswald. Two days after Oswald's arrest, he was supposed to be transferred from the city jail where he was being held to the county jail. They handcuffed Oswald to a police officer and once again led him down through the parking garage through a mob of press people. This transfer was supposed to happen at 10 a.m., but was delayed because Lee Harvey insisted on having a sweater. So they were not actually out of the building until 11.15. But this timing perfectly coincides with Jack Ruby being right across the street from the police station at a Western Union so he could send a money order to one of his dancers. Ruby crosses the street, walks down the ramp into the garage where all the commotion is. Jack Ruby, suffering from mental illness, hopped up on diet pills, and just filled with rage and grief at what has happened to the president. And here comes Lee Harvey Oswald, paraded right in front of him. Jack Ruby steps out of the crowd, pulls his 38 Colt Cobra revolver from his pocket, and fires one shot into the belly of Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was taken to Parkland Hospital, where Kennedy had just died two days earlier. Oswald was also dead less than two hours later. 
Ruby was arrested, and when asked about his motives, he stated that he wanted to save Mrs. Kennedy from the pain of going through a trial, and instead, he contributed in no small way to the lingering questions and mistrust surrounding the Kennedy assassination. Ruby refused to use an insanity defense, even though the idea was backed by his lawyer and even his own sister. Ruby was convicted of murder. Three years later, he was granted a new trial. However, just a couple of months before his appeal, Jack Ruby died of a pulmonary embolism secondary to lung cancer. Jack Ruby also died at Parkland Hospital on January 3, 1967. Before his death, Jack Ruby did make one final statement about the Kennedy assassination from his hospital bed. He stated, There is nothing to hide. There was no one else. We've made a few references to the Warren Commission, but we haven't actually talked about what it was. Once President Lyndon B. Johnson was back in Washington, D.C., he had this intense concern that a formal investigation was needed to remove any doubt about who killed Kennedy and the circumstances surrounding the assassination. The Warren Commission met formally for the first time on December 5, 1963, on the second floor of the National Archive Buildings in Washington, D.C. The final 888-page report was presented to President Johnson on September 24, 1964, a little less than a year later, and was made public three days after that on September 27. It concluded that President Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald and that Oswald acted entirely alone. It also concluded that Jack Ruby acted alone when he killed Oswald two days later. In November 1964, two months after the publication of the 888-page report, the commission published 26 volumes of supporting documents, including the testimony or depositions of 552 witnesses and more than 3,100 exhibits. Ugh, the Warren Report. Do you want conspiracy theorists? Because this is how you get conspiracy theorists. The findings were much maligned, which is understandable. There are a lot of questions about things that were excluded, witnesses that were not interviewed, and members of the investigative committee were not allowed to look at the autopsy photos. Yet there's a whole section about Lee Harvey Oswald's mother's dental records. And the best that they could come up with for motive was, none of these possibilities satisfactorily explains Oswald's act if it is judged by the standards of reasonable men. It's amazing to me just how many unreasonable men surround this entire case. So let me present my final theory, which could almost be considered reasonable. Almost. This was a theory that was initially put forth by a ballistics expert by the name of Howard Donahue. Howard Donahue got involved with the Warren Commission as one of 11 marksmen and sharpshooters that were brought in to prove that Lee Harvey Oswald could have fired three shots in the 5.6 second window that he had. Donahue not only helped prove it was possible, but he was the only shooter that was able to beat the 5.6 second window. Despite the fact that he helped the Warren Commission prove what they wanted, for Donahue, it created more questions than it answered. He started doing his own investigations from a strictly ballistic forensics view, and in 1977, he shared his findings with the Baltimore Sun in a two-part article. This theory would resurrect again in the 1992 book called Mortal Error, The Shot That Killed JFK, written by Bonar Menninger. Donahue's theory begins with the differences between a full metal jacket bullet and a frangible bullet. Full metal jacket were first brought into use as part of the Geneva Convention. Because they don't explode on impact, they cause less damage in the human body. 
A full metal jacket bullet would explain how a bullet could become a magic bullet because it wouldn't break up and would instead pass right through Kennedy and into Connolly. Exactly. But the third bullet, the one that went into the president's head, acted as though it were a frangible bullet, causing massive amounts of damage. In addition, Donahue also believed that the trajectory of the wound in Kennedy's head was not consistent with the shot that had been fired from above. So Donahue theorized that the third bullet must have come from somewhere other than Oswald's sniper's nest. The sheriff that first discovered the sniper's nest found three spent shells, but one of those casings was bent, a different caliber from the others, and it was found in a different place from the other two casings. Donahue's theory is that this anomalous casing was actually a chamber plug. Gun owners will sometimes keep an empty chamber in their gun to keep it clean while in storage. So if Oswald only fired two shots from the book depository, the third and fatal headshot came from somewhere else? Yes, and according to Donahue, the shot could have only come from the left rear seat of the Secret Service car following the president's car. The president's Secret Service detail only had 34 agents working in six-man teams in rotating eight-hour shifts. However, this Texas tour was massive, and to cover the crazy schedule, agents were working double shifts, working on their days off, and very often not even sleeping. There is also the fact that the night before the assassination, almost all of the agents went out drinking at a place called The Cellar. The Cellar did not have a liquor license, but they offered a concoction of fruit juice and grain alcohol. The agents started stumbling back in at 5 a.m. for events that were to begin at 7. Okay, so best case scenario, these guys are working with killer hangovers, and worst case scenario, they're still a little drunk. But there was one agent that did not go out drinking that night. His name was George Hickey. Hickey had only been an agent for four months, and his primary duties up until this point had all been vehicle-related. But since Hickey was the lone sober guy that day, they told him he was taking point on president duty, and they handed him a newly issued AR-15, a gun that had never been used by Secret Service agents until then. Let me guess, those guns used frangible bullets. Bullseye. Too soon. Sorry. Is it possible that in the chaos of that moment, a new agent who's never before been on this kind of duty, has never had any real-world experience handling an AR-15, panics, stands up in his seat, and is sent flying back down again and accidentally misfires his weapon? Later, Hickey would say that he did stand up in the vehicle and that he cocked his rifle after the third shot rang out, and that it would stay that way until Parkland Hospital. However, Another agent claims that he gave Hickey the gun, quote, ready to go, meaning it was already cocked. But there have been recent findings that AR-15s often experience a malfunction where cocking the weapon does not properly load the round into the chamber. So is it possible that both agents were right about when the gun was cocked, even if it hadn't been fired? But there were witnesses that confirmed the story of seeing this agent stand up and fall back into his seat. There was one witness who said he saw a flash of pink from the Secret Service car and assumed they were firing back at the assassin. And 11 different witnesses claimed they smelled gunpowder at street level, including one Senator Ralph Yarborough, who was in the vice presidential car. I suppose whenever you look back on any event, if you really pick it apart, there are always going to be these weird strands. So many things about this particular event are just odd. But then again, how much of it can you attribute to the fact that there were just so many witnesses? The Warren Commission started with the conclusion they wanted to reach and just made sure that all the evidence pointed to that. 
And in 1976, the United States House of Representatives Select Committee on Assassinations began to investigate the assassinations of President John F. Kennedy and civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. And ultimately, they concluded that the assassination of Kennedy was most likely the result of a conspiracy. Of course, they didn't provide much else. It was concluded that the Soviet government, the Cuban government, anti-Castro groups, the mafia, the Secret Service, the FBI, nor the CIA were involved. They also concluded that it was probable that a fourth shot was fired and that it may have come from the grassy knoll. So what you're saying is the search for Badge Man still continues. I think that this is a mystery that will probably endure for all time, and there will never be a final word on what happened in Dallas that day. I agree, but I think I can put some things into perspective by reciting some lines from the misfit seminal, <laughs> seminal punk classic bullet. Texas is an outrage when your husband is dead. Texas is an outrage when they pick up his head. Texas is the reason that the president's dead. Right, Jackie O. Okay. Hey, listener, thank you for tuning in to the Paranoid Style Podcast. And a special shout out to the NSA, our first and most loyal listener. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any topic suggestions for the show or any tales to share, please email us at theparanoidstylepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at theparanoidstylepod or on Twitter at style underscore paranoid. Opening theme music provided by Tony Molina. You can hear more of his music at tonymolina650.bandcamp.com.